Each of the past few weeks as we've been talking about prayer, it's kind of been interesting to watch God bring people in our midst and uh, kind of live out the, the sermon, at least for me. Um, I, I will tell you that, let me tell you a little bit about how things, I guess, work. Michael and I work together. We, we think about songs and selection of songs uh, weeks in advance, and so we have a system where they're put in, and and we kind of know what they are, and then as the weeks unfold, if you're a musician, you get those song choices that are sent to you and things of that nature. Well, so the song that, that we just sang, Send the Rain, uh, was already in the system. Uh, when I preached on Elijah, if y'all were here the second week, we, we talked about Elijah and what we could learn in our prayer life. Well, at the end of that message, uh, I had a gentleman walk up to me that was a guest. He, he was a visitor that day, and so he proceeded to tell me that he was at another church. He was traveling through. He was just visiting us, and he was traveling through, and he had been at a church in uh, Conyers uh, the week before, uh, listening to the message. Uh, as the message ended, he felt God calling him to, to write a note down. So he wrote the note down, and he put it in his Bible and came to church at Stockbridge the second week of our series of Elijah. So I got through preaching, and he walked up, and he told me that story that God had given him a message, and he said, I think it's for you. And he handed me his card that he had written down, and what his prayer was in the rain. He had written about Elijah. The previous previous week, the message wasn't on Elijah. God had just given him a message to write, and he felt like that we needed to hear that. I tell you all that story again because it just appears to me that God is bringing people into our midst to to hear the message and what God's calling us to do. And I challenge us as a community of faith to to stay strong in our prayer and our commitment to God as we move forward. And I know for me, the last few weeks, God has really grown me uh, in my own prayer life. And I pray that that's been your experience as well. Uh, so today, as, as Michael said, we're going to talk about Paul. We're going to move into the New Testament. We've been looking at Old Testament uh, figures and, and, and characters, what we can learn from their relationship and their prayer life. And so today we want to look at Paul and to figure out what we're able to learn from him. Uh, I will tell you that I was uh, ordained in the United Methodist Church in 2010. Now, when you get ordained... There's a, a kind of a rite of passage, if you will. So uh, once you're ordained, the following spring you get invited to pay your way to Israel. Uh, and so, uh, so I did that. Um, uh, the bishop invites everybody who is ordained the previous year to go with him or her. Uh, and Michael Watson was our bishop at that time. And so he, he sent a message to me, and I agreed and, and went. It was great. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you do want to do it. But, but it, I tell you that, so... Part of going to Israel, if you've ever been, it's amazing what different things speak to you. Uh, so you may hear people go and they may say, well, you know, I got to, to touch the spot that they think Jesus was born. And that was really cool. Uh, I will tell you, for me, that was, I mean, it was neat, but they don't really know that's the spot. So, you know, it's just very commercial. So it, re- it really wasn't the thing that moved me. Um, but there were certain spots that did. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, I loved it. it. Was It was just 
It was just neat. I mean, we were on a boat. It was perfect. We got off the boat, and the storm came up. We didn't see the storm coming. The whole Bible just coming to life, you know. And so, but you're, you're on the Sea of Galilee, and you're like, you know, Jesus could have walked right there. Uh, you don't really know. And so then, then we got to this place on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's, it's kind of an abrupt transition from sea to shore in lots of places. There's this one place where... There's this shallow rock formation, and there's like a waterfall. Well, I think Jesus was a pretty smart dude. So I'm like, Jesus probably showered in that waterfall because there's nowhere else to get refreshed, and probably you're hot. You're, you know, that would just be a place that he would probably go. And, and then right above that is this hillside, which was probably one of my favorite places ever. Um, but there was this hillside where there was this cave and inside the cave was this little bench made out of rock. And there's no other shade anywhere around. So, again, I'm thinking, Jesus probably sat in that cave because he was smart, right? So he probably thought, if I'm going to teach people, I might as well sit in the shade. Uh, and so, I mean, do I know it? It was just, it was just neat. Um, things like that that just really impressed me. Um, the one I'm getting to when I get to Paul was uh, the Roman road to Damascus was another one of those places for me. I, I want to show you a picture so you kind of get an idea of, of the Roman road. So, so, so Saul, Paul was Saul. So if you don't know the story, Saul was uh, the, the person in charge of persecuting Christians. And so he was this uh, mean guy who who felt like anybody who was a follower of Jesus the Messiah was dangerous to, to the community. Uh, and so he wanted to, to persecute. In fact, he was there when Stephen, it tells us in Acts, that Stephen was the first person martyred for the Christian faith. He was there uh, leading the charge um, and, and, and watching them stone Stephen. And so then he got the priest to give him a letter that gave him permission to go to Damascus so that he could arrest the followers of Jesus and could do the very same to them. So he's walking down this road to Damascus. And, uh, and the story tells us that somewhere along the way, um, whether it was here or somewhere else, that somewhere along the way uh, he had this blinding light um, come to him and, and knock him to his knees. Uh, and so he doesn't know what this is. And all of a sudden he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he asked the obvious question, who, who are you? And then Jesus responds, it's Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And so he's on this road and Jesus says to him, I want you to go ahead and go on to Damascus like you planned, but I want you to sit there for three days in silence. He's blinded. He has to be led to Damascus. And he does that. He goes and he sits and, and, and probably has to think about what's happening. And in the meantime, Jesus speaks to one of his followers, Ananias, who is in Damascus, and says, I want you to go talk to Saul. Now remember, he was on his way to arrest the followers of Jesus, and he tells one of his followers of Jesus, go and talk to Saul. Can you imagine what Ananias was thinking? I don't know that I want to go do that. Uh, but somewhere along the way, he got up enough courage, he went and he met Saul, and he shared the gospel with Saul. And the story tells us that as a result of that, Saul came to be baptized and, and to believe in Christ. 
And if you know that, Saul became Paul, one of the great proponents of the Christian faith. And Paul was the one who wrote the New Testament. Paul's the one who became an apostle to the Gentiles. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you sit here today because of what happened on that road. And when I found myself there, I connected that to my story. And I was moved by just the idea that what happened would affect me in that way. And so I think that Paul has something to say to us about how we can be in relationship with God. And so I began to look at Paul's prayer life and began to think about how would you, how would you summarize Paul's relationship and Paul's prayer. And so if you read Paul's prayers and you read the way that he encounters and what other people say about this, I came up with this summary for Paul. Paul plus prayer equals thanksgiving. Now, this one word, it summarizes it for me. It doesn't, it's not exhaustive as far as what Paul thinks about with regards to prayer, but it was certainly a primary emphasis. And we see that in all of the ways that Paul communicates to the churches that he writes to. In all of his letters that Paul wrote to the churches, with the exception of one, the Galatians, he was frustrated with them. So besides that one, all the other ones, he, he, he would start with something of thanksgiving. Listen to what he wrote to the Ephesians. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers with thanksgiving. To the Philippians, he said, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy. If you go and watch the letters, you watch how he prays. He thanked God for the Colossians. He thanked God for the Thessalonians. He thanked God for the, for the Romans. Uh, he, thanked, he thanked God for the Corinthians. He, he constantly is thanking God. All of his prayers are filled with thanksgiving. But I tell you that, that's not really where you see this focus of thanksgiving come out. You see it there. But really, if you go and look at Paul, look at his teachings. He tells the Colossians, he says, you, you need to fill your prayers with thanksgiving. He tells them, he says, that you need to be abounding in thanksgiving. He also tells them to devote yourselves to prayer, and you devote yourselves to prayer by keeping alert in thanksgiving. He says this in Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is just part of the rhythm of prayer for Paul. What Paul is saying to, the, to, to you and to me is that if, if you're going to pray, this is just how you should pray. You should be people of thanksgiving. You should be people who thank God. It's just part of who we are. In Philippians, we get a very famous passage on prayer. Listen to what it says in Philippians 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a powerful message. I mean, don't be anxious about anything. Yeah, bring your concerns to God. If you're sitting here, and this is where we get really practical. If you're sitting here and you're stressed, if you're sitting here with worry on your mind, yes, bring your concerns to God, but do it with thanksgiving. And then you will experience the peace. You will experience the peace of God that you can't really understand, and we don't really know how it works. But you experience the peace of God. It, it, it carries you. And you can sit here and go, well, I'm not sure Paul understands what I'm going through. I'm not sure Paul gets 2017, all the stress and anxiety that go along with it. 
I should tell you that he writes that passage from prison. He's been in prison for years, waiting on execution. And really, at the end of the day, he's led away from prison to a guillotine where his head's cut off. So I think he does know a little bit about difficulty in life. And what he says is that given that, this explains to us how Paul still gets peace in the midst of waiting in prison, is being thankful. What you see is Paul's life is characterized by two dual movements. They're the same, they're two sides of a different coin, or two sides of the same coin, I guess you should say. Trusting in God, and then being thankful. Two sides of the same coin. You stop and go, well, if you're in prison, and you're trusting in God, and when you're trying to be thankful, what are you trusting in? What are you thankful for? And there could be a lot of different answers for that, but I think that what it is, I think if you go look at Paul's writings, I think this is really at the heart of what he trusts God for and what he's thankful for. Look at what it says in Romans 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God doesn't force bad things to happen. But what Paul is convinced of is Paul is convinced that when those bad things happen, that God is somehow able to turn them and to somehow make good. Paul gives us advice. It's not just prayer advice. It's life advice. And what he does, and you see it all throughout Paul's life, is Paul flips his circumstances. He looks at a circumstance that you and I might look at as being negative, and he makes it positive. He stops and gives thanks for everything. He's in a prison cell awaiting execution. And he stops and goes, well, thank you, God. Because you know what? I get to talk to these guards, and I wouldn't have had the opportunity to talk to these guards if I wasn't here in prison. See how he can flip his circumstances? you got to stop and think about this morning. What do you need to flip in the way that you're looking at things? What we see Paul does is Paul chooses to look at opportunities rather than at negative experiences. What do you need to be thankful for? All throughout the scriptures, when you look at Paul's life, you see this in his teachings and the way that he lives. One of the greatest stories for me is in Acts 16. So you get Paul and Silas. They're, they're preaching to the, to the people of Philippi. And they get to town, and they're going around, and they're talking about Jesus And this young girl begins to follow them around. Now, she has a spirit inside of her that allows her to tell people's fortune. And so she makes quite a bit of money being a fortune teller. Well, at first they think it's cute. Here's this little girl. She's following them around. She's saying good things about them that, hey, they serve the the most high God. And so they tolerate it for a little while. But then she becomes irritating to them because she's kind of turning people away from him, from them. And so... Uh, Paul looks at her one day and tells the spirit that's inside of her to come out. And for the first time in her life, she is whole. She's happy. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, she is well. We hear that part of the story and we think, well, that would be good, right? That's a good thing. Well, she's, she's owned by somebody And that somebody makes a good bit of money off of her. And so now they look at it. They don't care whether she's psychologically, emotionally, and physically whole. 
She's a money source. It's dried up, and she's got to blame somebody for that. Who do they blame? They blame Paul. So they go to the authorities. They have Paul arrested. He's always getting arrested. He's always getting thrown in prison. They have him arrested, and then they bring these uh, Roman lictors. Those are the people, if you know the story of Jesus, they're the people who beat Jesus. They had these big old pads that had metals and bones sticking out of them. They beat Jesus' back. They did this to Paul, and they did this to Silas. They beat them within an inch of their life, and then they threw them in solitary confinement. So what do you think Paul and Silas are doing and thinking now? Following Jesus, doing what he'd ask them to do, and they get beat with an inch of their life and thrown into a solitary confinement. What would you be thinking? Why? This doesn't seem fair. I'm trying to do everything I should be able to do. This is, but that's not what you see Paul and Silas. See, Paul and Silas, they flip it. Look at what it says in Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And other prisoners were listening to them. Are you aware, if you sit here today and you're a follower, are you aware that the world is watching you? They're watching to see how you handle negative situations. It's easy. It's easy to sit here and sing songs and to praise God when everything's going good. It's much more difficult when things are struggles, when when things are, are happening that aren't so good. But God, but, but, but the world is watching how we do that. At this moment, Paul and Silas are witnessing to the world what they believe. And what happens? If you know the story, the earth begins to shake and the prison doors break open, right? They're, they're free. The prison guard comes in. He's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I'm going to kill myself because the, 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 the authorities are going to kill me once they find out that, that people got out of, of prison. But Paul and Silas sat there prison guard comes in they go wait a minute don't do that because we're here prison guard looks at them and says well why are you here why didn't you go and Paul and Silas begin to share with this jailer this Philippian jailer the gospel of Jesus Christ and the story tells us that them that that him and his whole entire family are baptized and become believers in Jesus see him flip it Everything for Paul, everything is an opportunity. Everything is a possibility of an encounter to be able to witness to someone for Jesus Christ. Do you approach everything and every day and everyone you meet with that same opportunity? Let me show you this passage. It comes in 1 Thessalonians. It's a great life verse for some. It says, rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Y'all read that with me this morning, up to just the semicolon. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. One more time. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Why should we do this? Because it says that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Folks, this is, Paul's telling us, this is not something that's natural. It's not something that just comes to us. This is something we have to develop and discipline ourselves. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is Paul's prayer. This is how he lived. This is how he taught. Everything about Paul was for this. When God answered his prayers, he lived that way. And when God didn't answer his prayers, he lived that way. See, we think of Paul 
Everything went really good for Paul. Again, did I tell you that he was killed? Uh, he was in prison. He was beaten. Uh, but here's the thing is Paul, Paul struggled his whole life with prayers not being answered. Uh, the scripture tells us that he had uh, a thorn in his side. Now, some scholars believe that he actually suffered from a disease called macular degeneration, which meant he was going blind. He could see on the periphery, but he couldn't see, and so he couldn't write, and Paul loved to write. He, he had to be led where he needed to go, and so Paul pleaded with God, the Scripture says. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, if this is true, that God says, I'm going to let you have macular degeneration. I'm going to let the disease run its course. I'm, I'm going to let you go blind. But I'll be with you. I'll lead you. It leads Paul to be able to, even in the midst of an unanswered prayer, to be able to say this in 2 Corinthians 12. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See how he flipped it again? He flipped the circumstance. God's going to be his strength. I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going to be thankful. That's how he lived his life. That's how he lived every part of his life. Now, you may think, okay, well, that's not realistic. But maybe it's a little more realistic than we think. There's a study done by the University of Manchester in England. They studied sleep patterns. This was not a Christian study. This wasn't a study on Paul. It wasn't a study about prayer. It didn't have anything to do with religion of any sort whatsoever. They were just studying how do people fall asleep, what makes people fall asleep quicker, and what makes people fall asleep deeper. Now, they had all kinds of different controls that were part of the scientific study, but what they came to the conclusion, which was surprising to them, and surprising that scientists wrote about this. But, that, but what they came to the conclusion was that people who go to sleep saying thanks fall asleep quicker and sleep deeper and better than people who don't give thanks before they go to sleep. Actually, what they titled this part of it was, It's Better to Count Your Blessings Than to Count Your Sheep. Uh, and, and their whole point was that, that it, it ends your consciousness with a, with a positive note of being thankful for the things that you've been blessed with rather than all the things that you're worried and anxiety about. If those are the things that you go to sleep thinking about that you stay and you wrestle with them all night long and they wake you up at night. These are scientists saying this. This isn't Christianity saying that it's better to be thankful as you fall asleep. So it might be something like, okay, God, here's what I'm worried about because it's okay to acknowledge what you're worried about. We saw that with David. And uh, it, it's, you know, it, this is what I'm worried about. This is what I'm stressed over. But I'm going to choose to give thanks for this, this. I'm going to give thanks to this. I'm going to give you thanks for this. See how this might work? Try it. I mean, literally try it this week as you're going to sleep. Try choosing to, to be thankful. There was another study done by Philip Watkins. He's a professor of psychology at Eastern Washington University. And he was looking at the difference between gratitude and happiness. And so what he was trying to figure out is what makes people happy. And what he came to realize, which again was contrary to the way we live, because how do we live? We live, well, if I have this, then I'll be happy. 
So if I get a nicer car, I'll be happy. Or if I get a bigger TV, I'll be happy. If I have a better spouse, I'll be happy. Uh, we look at all of those. There are a few people that say that. Uh, so, uh, but if we say that, that that's what's going to make me happy. What, what he came to realize was people who develop a discipline of gratitude are happier with less. I think that's one of the things when I encourage people to go on a mission trip, that's one of the things that always really strikes me is people who have so much less than what I think would make me happy are so much more joyful than what I sometimes find myself living. So we need to develop a discipline of gratitude. And again, this is contrary to nature. It's a discipline that you have to build into. If, you, if you've ever had children, you know this is true. Studies show that you have to work four times harder to get your children to say thank you than you do to have your children say hi or bye. And if you've ever had a child, you know that's, that's, that's true. To have to work with them to be able to say thank you. We have to develop this discipline. There's a book out there called Radical Gratitude. And she writes that, that gratitude, having gratitude, is the unsexiest spiritual discipline. But that if you can develop the spiritual discipline of gratitude, that it's the mustard seed of faith that brings about life-changing power. And I think that's what you live and see in Paul. Somebody who's constantly whispering to God, thank you. See, Elijah, we learn that we need to listen to the whisper of God when God's speaking to us. But I think from Paul, we learn we need to whisper to God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'll be honest with you, I think if we really are, we think about it, this makes perfect sense to us. How many of you are married, ever been married? Keep your hands up. Now, how many of you are married to the perfect spouse? Don't take your hand in so quick. No, just kidding. <laughs> Those of you who have your hands up, you're crazy. Uh, no, you're not. And, and how many of you think you are the perfect spouse? No, you're not the perfect spouse either. Um, we all have our own quirks. We all have our own things that frustrate us. And I say that about, because if Claire were to look at all of my negatives... We're going on being married 29 years this year. If we look at all, if she were just to focus on all the things that frustrate and irritate her about me, we probably wouldn't make it to 29 or 30. But I'm thankful that she chooses to look at the positives. Uh, that it's, it's the truth for the way, that we, that, that the way that we can operate in our workplace, the way that we can operate when we go out into the world to be able to stop and look and go, I'm just going to choose to be positive. I'm going to choose to be thankful. And we have to develop a spiritual discipline of gratitude. You have to learn how to flip your circumstance. And I think that's one of the greatest lessons we can learn from Paul is to take anything that is negative, any circumstance that you find yourself in and begin to flip it to say, God, what, what are you doing? In this, because I'm convinced that you are able to take everything that appears to be negative, everything that appears to be bad, I'm convinced that you are able to somehow make it good. Are you thankful this morning? When we went to Israel, 
we met a lot of interesting people. One of them was our uh, tour guide. His name was Jimmy. Jimmy was the most knowledgeable person that I've ever met, which is, I guess, why he's a tour guide. But he was the most knowledgeable person on the land of Israel and the connection to Christianity, even though he was Jewish. Um, And so he would take us around and show us all these. And so we spent 10 days with Jimmy, and what we we came to find out a lot about him. Uh, He works 18 to 20 hours a day. Uh, as a tour guide, and uh, he makes about $75 a day uh, when he's a tour guide. That's what he makes. He would carry this baggie around with him, and so we start to ask him, we're like, you know, what's the baggie? And so every time he would get a tip, he would make sure he put 10% of his tip into the baggie. So that way he would make sure that he gave what he needed to give uh, to the synagogue at the end of the month. And so he, he was very disciplined in all of that. And so we would stop our tour literally in the middle of the day. We would stop our tour so Jimmy could go off and pray. He would pray 20 minutes every day in the middle of the day. No matter where we were, we had to stop so Jimmy could go and pray. So we were talking to him a little bit about that. And so he was sharing with us. That he prays, so he prayed that 20 minutes every day. He would pray 15 minutes at night, and then he would get up early in the morning and pray for 40 minutes. Now, so let's put all that together. He works 18 to 20 hours a day. He prays for 20 minutes during the day, prays for 15 minutes at night, but he still gets up and prays for 40 minutes every morning. First, challenge myself to go, do I do that? But then secondly, that to stop. And so we, I, we were talking to Jimmy, I was like, what do you pray for 40 minutes? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you say to get up every morning early for 40 minutes? And his response, I still never forget it, and every time I ever think about gratitude, I think about Jimmy. His response was very quick. He said, I just simply tell God thank you. If we learn one lesson from Paul, this one lesson can change your prayer life forever. And can change your life forever. Just think about your prayers of the last seven days. How much of it was devoted to telling God thank you. Just simply thank you. I remind you what he teaches us in 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we come as your people thankful. Thankful for this day. This day that you have given us. This day that we have never seen before. And Lord, I realize that so many of us walk in this door with circumstances and situations in our lives that maybe no one else knows, maybe everybody knows. But God, I am convinced, just like Paul, I am convinced that you are able to to make everything that appears to be negative, that you are somehow able to bring about good in the midst of that. And so, God, I pray that you give us the ability, the power to to flip our circumstance and to sit here today thankful for every opportunity that we have, for every opportunity that you're going to give us in this next 24 hours, 
for every opportunity that we're going to have in these next seven days to be able to witness for people what it means to, to, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This week we have been, or this, this month I have been giving you a, an opportunity to respond. And so we've been having cards for you to come in and uh, get and pray over. And so we've been praying for the church. We've been praying for the leaders. We've been praying for uh, our families. We've been praying for community. So I'm going to invite you this morning to come forward as we have an opportunity to respond and to take a card. And this week is a different challenge. So this week, rather than us giving you the prayer that we want you to pray, We're going to ask you to write the prayer that you're going to pray. And what specifically I'm asking you to write a prayer for, if you'll notice on the front, it's intentional, a prayer for anybody. If you were here the very first week, I shared with you the story of the the gentleman that just showed up at our door, said his name was anybody. This week, we happened to be in New York City, and we were in St. Patrick's Cathedral, and the cathedral church was full of Anybody just trying to get warm. And so I invite you this morning to commit to praying for anybody and write a prayer to reach the unchurched. And then every week of Lent, which starts on Wednesday, our service will start with someone reading their prayer. Now, just because you write it, don't freak out on this. And so I'm not going to go up and get one because now he's going to make me read it. Uh, I, I, I won't twist your arm much, but I will, I, I, I will let you reach out to me if you're willing to, to read your prayer to the congregation. Um, this is a way for us to hear the prayers of the people. We cry out that we, we need God, that we thirst after God, that we hunger after God. And so this is our opportunity to, to, to pray together and with each other. So I just simply ask you this morning as we have our last song um, for you to to respond, the altar is always open for you to sit and just say thank you to God for whatever you want to talk to God about, but also to come forward if you're able to be able to take a card and commit to praying for the unchurched, those God is calling us to reach this Lenten season. Amen.